um, administrators and teacher training programs have somewhere along the way lost sight of the fact that, you know, this emotional piece of it is, is a key part of it. And there's so just been so much pressure on, you know, test scores and academic ratings and all that, that, that we forget that kids can't learn effectively if they don't have relations, good relationships with their teachers, with their classmates, and, you know, that all plays in together. Hi, this is Liz Weaver, and you are listening to the Learning Success Podcast, an information-packed podcast with the latest news, information, and tips to help you overcome a learning difficulty. For anyone suffering from a reading difficulty, writing difficulty, a math difficulty, a focus problem, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, or ADHD, this is the place for you. The Learning Success Podcast is brought to you by LearningSuccessSystem.com. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Success Podcast, where we learn to embrace your child's brilliance and unleash their true potential. Today, we have Dr. Amy Webb. Amy is a wife and mother of a, with a doctorate in human development and family sciences. She is passionate about bringing research-based parenting and child development information into the lives of all parents. She prefers to be thought of as a translator of research into a parent-friendly format rather than a parenting expert. She says you are the only expert on your child and his or her unique traits and quirks. She sees the value of research not in telling us what's right or wrong with our parenting, but rather helping us to see our children with a new lens. And today we have an interesting subject to talk about. Today we're going to talk about the relationship between soft skills and attention. Hello, Amy, and welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for having Thanks for coming to this podcast. This is a really great subject. I think there's a, there's a lot to talk about here. So um, before we jump into the, the soft skills, I uh, liked what you said here about um, a parent being the only expert or the, the true expert on your child. Um, can you talk about that? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, I come from a research background and I think a lot of times what we hear with, you know, quote unquote parenting experts is that there's sort of one right or wrong way to parent your child. And um, I guess after having my own children and experiencing their unique personalities and temperaments, um, I've come to see that really there's a lot of right ways um, to parent our kids. And um, so I think the parent is always sort of the best expert in the sense of they know their child the best. They know their little unique qualities, their strengths, their temperament. And so, you know, if you can combine that knowledge that the parent has with a little bit of research knowledge or child development knowledge, then I think that's really the perfect combination for making really good informed decisions for our kids. Okay, and maybe a little bit of intuition as, as well? Exactly. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, I know that, you know, as humans, we're, you know, one of our biases is that authority. And so it's really easy to fit into following authority traps when that. So, and of course, that, that uh, parenting advice is what's right or wrong has changed, I think, pretty dramatically over the years, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Definitely. Good. So let's talk uh, about the soft skills. So can you tell us, um, we hear about soft skills, but what does that exactly mean? Um, so yeah, soft skills just means social emotional skills. Um, usually when people refer to that term, it's just 
um, social emotional skills being things like getting along with other people, understanding our own emotions, um, being able to regulate our emotions and sort of cope with our emotions, um, cooperating with others, empathizing with other people. All those things are wrapped up into the, the idea of soft skills. Okay. And these are skills that, um, I mean, do you think some kids, it's just, they, they're learned naturally or? Um, yeah. yeah, that's a, that's always an interesting question because there's, I think what research would tell us is that it's, it's some of both. It's sort of part nature and part nurture. So, like um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, kids, I think are, we're all sort of wired as human beings to be social people, right? We all were social species and we interact with other people. That's part of our nature. And even the youngest children, you know, even you've seen your toddlers probably, if another child is crying, they'll respond to that. They, they have this innate sort of caring instinct, I think, that they'll start crying themselves sometimes, or they'll want to know why that child is crying. So that's definitely there. But um, as, you know, the role of society kind of seeps into child development, then sometimes that tendency towards caring and social emotional skills gets a little lost in the mix, I think, if we don't continue to model it. Right, right. So that's interesting you, um, point you brought up about a child either starting to cry themselves if it is so it, and then also curiosity. So those are kind of two different things. So is the first um, like an expression of mirror neurons or why do, why do you think that a child starts crying if they see another child start crying? Yeah, I think that is definitely one aspect of it is just that the mirror, mirror neurons and the sort of um, we're affected by other people's emotions. That's just part of our, you know, wiring as humans. Um, and that's so, yeah. right at a very, very young age then, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and even, you know, even infants will imitate people's facial behaviors and facial expressions and things like that. So I think that is just sort of that innate, the way our brains are wired um, aspect of development. Um, and then, as you mentioned, then just the curiosity of why is this child crying? And that's just, you know, toddlers, especially young children, are curious about everything. They want to know why everything works the way it does, including people. <laughs> right. That's our learning process, right? So what, do you think there's a, uh, so a, a child that either starts crying or is curious, is that a difference in temperament that that, or just context or? Why would one child cry and the other be curious? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it could be just temperament. I mean, um, I don't know the research on why there would be that difference exactly. I think um, some kids definitely based on their temperament might be more drawn to approaching another person that was upset, whereas other another child that has a less extroverted temperament might be more kind of frightened by that. So I think that that's probably a, a big part of it. I see. Good. So, um, so this uh, soft skills is seems to be, according to research, linked to academics. Why? What's the connection? Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I think for a long time we've thought of kids sort of as robots that they just go into a classroom and are expected to learn, right? Yeah. Um, but what we're seeing, and you know, as you know this well, that um, 
soft skills are related to academics because we're a complete human person, right? We have emotions tied up with everything that we do. So if a child is not feeling good about themselves or if they're upset about something that's going on with their own home life or their own situation, it's going to be harder for them to learn and do well academically because, you know, that emotion piece of it is, is part of learning. And so I think it's, um, it shouldn't really be news to any of us that these emotional skills and learning are connected. Um, And so they're, they're always tied up together. Yeah. And this is one of the things that's really intriguing me is, is where that, you mentioned robots and this theme has come up, especially in my last podcast, um, which was a teacher who, and she was, uh, she was talking about forming relationships with the children. And she said the same thing that the, the whole teacher training is to train like the robots. It's just to, and to separate those two and how, um, her ideas of having soft skills and building soft skills and the relationship between her and that were so foreign in, in that, uh, that, that whole concept seems really strange. Yeah. Where, how did, how do we get there? <laughs> you know, I don't know completely. I think, you know, part of it I'm sure is this whole emphasis on standardized testing and, um, we continue to push the curriculum down each level, meaning, you know, what used to be learned in kindergarten is now learned in preschool and so forth and so on. And so I think as this has evolved, I I guess, throughout the years of education that um, administrators and teacher training programs have somewhere along the way lost sight of the fact that, you know, this emotional piece of it is, is a key part of it. And there's so just been so much pressure on, you know, test scores and academic ratings and all that, that that we forget that kids can't learn effectively if they don't have relations, good relationships with their teachers, with their classmates, and you know that all plays in together. So maybe the the um, the administrators' emotions might be getting into play here, as they're focused more on where the problem is rather than or what rather than the the, the cause of the problem. So if they're yeah, going exactly. to force math down their throat if if math is. Re- versus the problem is, is completely elsewhere. Yeah, that could be in that. And also talking back, back about the emotional piece of it is this anxiety that seems to be underlying so much of education that, you know, there's seem, it seems to be this underlying culture of fear and anxiety that our kids are not at the level that they're supposed to be. They're falling behind other countries. And that part of it seems to be another sort of emotional underlying piece of this that we have to catch up. We have to do all these things to get test scores up. And, and then, but this other piece of the emotional part of it is um, not always thought about. Right. So maybe it seems like maybe we're doing all the wrong and all the wrong things to catch up. Yeah. Sometimes uh, it's true. Cause those, those ideas of would of, of the standardized testing is just going to create more and more anxiety. Exactly. Interesting. So uh, how is, how are the soft skills connected to attention? Uh, in a similar way, you know, that the, the one research article that I mentioned in the piece was um, about the study that was of kindergartners. I believe it was in Germany, but they looked at um, kids' emotional knowledge and how that related to their um, attention span and focus. 
And basically what they found was that, you know, the, the more emotional knowledge kids had, the better their attention span was. And we think this is because um, once kids kind of have a grasp of what's going on in this emotional realm, so they can kind of read other people's emotions and understand their own emotions, then that doesn't take so much mental energy and they have more mental energy to focus on the task at hand. And so we think that that's what's going on um, with this particular part, with the attention part of it. And that makes sense. I mean, I think we've all been in situations where we've been distracted at work or something that we're trying to do because we have some emotional issue going on. We had a, you know, a fight with our spouse that morning or you know, someone that we love is sick and it's, it's hard to focus on your task at hand when you have this emotional kind of stress underlying. And so that, I think that relates to what the study is talking about is if kids can kind of come to some understanding and this was kindergartners, so they were only, you know, five, six years old, but um, have a read on other people's emotions, then that frees up all this mental space to be able to focus on their task. Right. So, so it's mainly the thought is, is that it's about cognitive load then? I think so. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what about the, um, here's another idea to throw into that. If, um, so if a student doesn't understand other people's emo or a child doesn't understand other people's emotions and that, then they're, they're, they're going to be in a less secure space, right? They're not, they exactly. don't, they don't understand their surroundings so much. Right. So they're, they're in higher anxiety levels. If they're in, in higher anxiety levels, that's going to put them into more of the fight or flight. And so they're not operating in that parasympathetic mode where they're going to learn better and all that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent think, point. <clears throat> that's, an, that's an element of it. Yeah, I think, I mean, this particular article didn't reference that, but I think that's, that makes total sense to me. When, you're, when your brain is in a place where it can be calm and centered, then you can be more focused if you're in this state of anxiety and uncertainty, then that's obviously not the best space for learning and focus. Right. right. Mm -hmm. we, yeah. We know, we know that when the limbic system is going nuts, when the amygdala is in charge, that it nearly shuts down the PFC yeah. completely. Right. Exactly. So yeah. Not, not going to learn. Um, so I, I pulled a quote off of, off of that article, the, the quote from Daniel Goleman, which, um, actually, it, I think we just answered what I was going to question about, but let me bring it up anyway. And, and I do, I think I read Daniel Goleman's um, Primal Leadership when it first came out. So I'm kind of familiar with this stuff and it's fantastic. But he says, the quote is, most of us have assumed that the kind of academic learning that goes on in school has little or nothing to do with one's emotions or social environment. Now neuroscience is telling us exactly the opposite. The emotional centers of the brain are intrinsically interwoven with neocortical areas involved in cognitive learning. When a child trying to learn is caught up in a distressing emotion, the centers for learning are temporarily hampered. The children's attention becomes preoccupied with whatever may be the source of the trouble because attention is itself a limited capacity. The child um, that has much less ability to hear, understand, or remember what a teacher or a book is saying. In short, there's a direct link between emotions and learning. So he seems to be touching on that stress reaction yeah, definitely. in mm -hmm. that one. Um, what, 
what really caught me off guard is that the first part of the statement it says most of us have assumed that the kind of academic learning that goes on in school has little or nothing to do with one's emotions or social environment and you mentioned they're treating the kids like robots and we talked about this so but again he's stating that that's the norm that's the thought process and i'll just I guess I'm asking again, it's just confusing. Why, why are we there? <laughs> you know? Well, I will say, I do think some things are changing. I mean, I okay. think, um, you know, I have seen more and more schools in recent years, at least where I'm at, um, start to incorporate more social emotional curriculum into their day. Um, and so, you know, we'll see how, how time goes on, if this is going to stay as a priority for schools, but I do think we're, we're hopefully starting to see the tide turn in this that, um, you know, more and more administrators and school districts are starting to understand really the value of the social emotional part of kids and that, you know, we can't continue to ignore that. Um, and yeah. you know, the best neuroscience is, is supporting that. And so hopefully that will spur some change in the education world. Yeah, I know it, it takes a, a long time for the neuroscience to, to filter down, right? How, yes. What type of time frames do you typically see for between its neuro? I know that's kind of the essence of your blog, is it that, that gap, right? It is to a certain degree, yeah. Child development, neuroscience. Um, I don't know if I have a good read on sort of exact time frame uh, when things, I think, I think some of it has to do with um, the values of the community where the particular school is at and the parents' understanding of these issues. There has to be sort of an education of the parents along with whatever change is happening in the school system. And so, <clears throat> you know, that takes a lot of time to kind of get people on board with a different type of learning. I know even in our situation, the school that we're at, um, it's taken a lot of learning on the part of the parents to understand what's really going on at the school when they want to do something different. Um, because we, as parents, I think we all, and just people in general, we tend to go back to, well, that's not the way I did it. That's not the way I learned in school. And so getting this new idea of social emotional learning into the schools is going to take not just an education of the administrators, but also the parents as well, I think. <clears throat> That's interesting. I, um, and uh, so other than your blog, where, where else are parents getting educated about this? Then? Is, yeah, that, is this, is this <laughs> in media any, or, or does everyone, maybe the, the whole world just needs to read your blog. <laughs> when, do, you, I, do you see this anywhere else? I the, mean, I think, um, well, in terms of like general parenting culture, there's, I don't see it a lot personally. I mean, I know there's, there's more and more parenting books that are coming out that are talking about social emotional skills. Okay. Um, so we do see that. And, but in terms of like kind of, you know, newspaper articles, you know, popular uh, blogs and things that are out there, I think it is starting to become more, a, you know, more relevant topic for a lot of parents. And actually, I think um, you probably recognize this more than I do. The parents whose children struggle with sort of the standard 
schooling system, I think those are the parents that probably are the most, have their eyes most open to these issues because yeah. they understand this way that we've educated our children for the last, you know, whatever, 40 years is not working and it's not working for a lot of kids. And so I think those are the parents that may be on the front line of this and understanding we have to do things differently if we want really our education system to work for more than just a very small percentage of the students. Yeah, I think you've got a good, you've got a really good point there. I have, there are a lot. I know the homeschooling community is um, very aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, in some areas of the learning differences, learning disabilities world, some are and then some are hanging on to a lot of old ideas, uh, ideas that they're not connected, that the brain doesn't change. And, you know, that this is, um, so there are really, there are some pockets for sure. For yeah. sure. So are you saying, so in, so we're seeing that uh, the scientists, the neuroscientists in, in, in this stuff are at least seeing the connection between the emotional and the cognitive, are they anything in the physical, the emotional and the cognitive in that area, or at least among those scientists? Uh, links between physical development, physical activity and? Not, uh, well, that, and so um, there is some stuff out there, uh, like in Amy Cuddy's work, are you familiar with, with her stuff? Uh, I don't think she, so. She had one of the very popular, second most popular TED Talks, and the first one was something about, the first one was something related to this too, but the, first, the, the second one was, is about posture and um, personal power. So our emotional feelings, how we, how we feel in, in posture. Um, so she's, she makes a real strong connection between postures, uh, she's got, you know, what she calls power poses, like a super superwoman pose and all of this, and advocates really simple ideas of, of having open postures before going into a situation to, to improve confidence. So that's just the first of seeing the connection between the physical and the emotional. Right. That's that's really starting to go on. That's actually where my background is in Kung Fu. I've seen it for 20, 20, 30 years now. Um, and I've seen huge differences in in people's personalities because they're able to, to, to learn to move their body in a certain way. And that is directly connected to the emotional. And so I've seen this in, in kids with learning disabilities. Um, I've seen it in you know young men who are like angry young men who've just had something really go bad in their life and have very low self-esteem and you can see these people change emotional states really really quickly through learning certain ways to hold or or move the body um so and that's i mean this is this is nothing new this is thousands of years old knowledge in the in the kung fu you know so but what i am seeing is starting to see the science make making those connections um and when when you look at neuroscience what's interesting is is that you know th these things are all happening starting in the hippocampus 
right? So you have spatial awareness in the hippocampus. You have the hippocampus being a part of the limbic system directly connected to the amygdala and having an inverse relationship with the size of the amygdala. Um, and, and so it, it has cognitive abilities, spatial awareness and emotion all, all there in the same part of the brain. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, it really is. And I, 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 the more I see of this going on in science, the more it excites me. Um, so um, as I actually have a hypothesis, if you'll, you'll come listen to it and comment on it. So here yeah. you, you mentioned um, babies mimicking um, facial expressions. Mm -hmm. Toddlers, what, what age would you say? Oh, I mean, to a, to a certain extent, even newborns do that. Really? Um, so a little bit. A, mm -hmm. So that's a part of the develop, developmental process just right from the start then. It seems to be. Yeah, so in, in um, like Asperger's syndrome, that's um, recognizing emotions is a real problem, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's where mm -hmm. they're deficient. They're deficient in recognizing other people's emotions, they're also diff, um, have a difficulty in recognizing their own. And that is part of becoming emotionally intelligent. Yeah. I mean, that's those, those yeah. two, two factors, right? So that going to the mirror neurons in, in Kung Fu, my, here's my hypothesis. In Kung Fu, we develop a real strong sense between our visual learning, our visual input, visual sensory, and our kinesthetic because we're looking at people the way they're moving in very precise ways and, we're, and then we're modeling that, right? Mm -hmm. So we're actually practicing that connection over and over and over, that's what we do. And it get, it's to the extent that when you get like to black belt level and you watch somebody who's not very good, it's actually painful. So it's like, so you're, you just, that skill just becomes innate. And so I've had a few uh, guys with Asperger's that you you can't I don't think they have Asperger's anymore there you just can't detect it in them and so I think the mechanism is what you were talking about about the mirror not neurons being developed so um, because we have um, micro facial expressions very one of the ways that the mirror neurons works is we'll mimic a facial expression so if a person has a facial expression and we mimic it, then we're bringing that emotion into our own body. Mm -hmm. And so my thought is, is that by developing the skill of having the visual to kinesthetic learning connection, we develop that skill deeper itself and then become more aware of other people's emotions. Wow. I... I don't have any reason to believe why that wouldn't be the case. I mean, it sounds perfectly plausible. I mean, that's really amazing to think about. I haven't heard this connection, this connection between things like Kung Fu and, you know, physical activity and emotional regulation, yeah. but it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Good. I, I, was, I was hoping you weren't going to call me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching, seeing this stuff. So I started, I had no knowledge of, of neuroscience. Um, as a matter of fact, I was a physics background uh, in college, at, or a physics major in college, so nothing to do with the brain. But 
we observed so many things in Kung Fu and all the training and we see, and then so I went on this 20 year journey of figuring out why what we were observe, observing was happening. And it was, and it's all, and it's been found in neuroscience. It's been sound, found in some of the things that you're talking about. There's just so much crossover. Yeah. We have to, we have different names for it in Kung Fu, but it's the same, right, right. same, same stuff. Um, awesome. So emotional intelligence, um, can you, can you describe what is, what are the factors of emotional intelligence that, that, uh, well, that we're developing? <clears throat> a lot of it relates back to those social emotional skills. So it's just sort of another way to describe um, a person's ability to read emotions, to regulate their own emotions, to empathize with people, all the things that you were talking about in terms of reading facial expressions and reading people's emotions. Um, all that goes into emotional intelligence. Right, right. So if I were to translate in that into Kung Fu, so um, the self-awareness happens again through, we develop, like we talked about the proprioception, the way we move, but that also involves interoception, how our body feels. And that's a big mind-body thing, right? And there's a, there is research on, on mind-body, but it's all in the meditation field. Oh, yeah. Some in in the Tai Chi field, but it's all with uh, it's all with the elderly, none with children. Hmm. Um, so, but there is some interesting things that in in, in the elderly, um, um, because their research is all about trying to to prevent falls. And one of the things um, which we can jump to a little bit, you talked about the um, music. There was an article on your site about the Mozart. Oh, um, what, what it was that the Mozart uh, theory yeah. or whatever, yeah. whatever it was that. <laughs> and I know the purpose of your article was you were talking about pop science, mm -hmm. but that, that there was. What I want to get to is actually what you ended the article with was that there where the science actually came from, and that developing, um, developing cognitive skills that have some crossover. So in, in other words, developing music skills, and then that would have crossover into academic skills. Can you want to right. talk about that just a little bit? Well, I think it, it goes back to the idea that all these parts of the brain are linked, right? We can't just separate out the physical or the cognitive or, you know, all these things work together. Um, so the whole Mozart part of it was, you know, we there was that now spoofed piece of research that talked about how if you play your play Mozart music for your baby or your child that that would increase their cognitive ability or their math ability or and that's not exactly what they found in the study the study the study really showed that 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 effect only lasted a few minutes but um, <laughs> we now know though that kids who learn music for instance do oftentimes it is related to better math ability or other cognitive abilities. And I think that's, that all goes back to the same idea that all these skills are linked together. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, a, it's kind of a, a beautiful thing to think about when you really open up your mind to the idea that all these things are not in their own little silos, that they're all connected. Um, and just like what you're talking about with the, the physical aspect of it too, um, 
and more and more schools, I think, are starting to get a, a little better sense of the physical aspect of learning, too. That, I think, we still have a long ways to go, but um, we're starting to see more schools that allow for more movement in the classroom. And that, to me, is very encouraging because, man, as a mom of two boys who are very active and do not like to sit still, the idea of having classrooms where they're allowed to move around and sit on stools or sit on the floor, all that stuff, I think, can only help, um, especially kids who struggle with, you know, focus and attention. Being able to move is a huge part of that. Right. And it seems to me that that should be obvious. I mean, toddlers learn are learning through movement. They're learning through touching and feeling and all that. So we're learning through those mechanisms from the start. Why wouldn't kids that, you know, your boys be there who they want to run and jump and play? That's learning. That's their learning mechanism. Right? Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have seen this firsthand with with my own kids, but other kids too, as soon as you allow them some movement while they're trying to focus on something or learn something, you know, it just, their focus increases substantially. I mean, and expecting kids to sit in a desk all day is just, you know, nowadays it's just really unrealistic, I think, that allowing them to move and, you know, do with their bodies what feels right in, or, in order to help them focus, I think is, um, we're coming to better understanding of that, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen over and over kids with ADHD that, you know, jump into Kung Fu and I mean, we're, they're moving fast and, and, and their, their cognitive, their attention and skills just develop so quickly once you, yeah. once you get them into something that, I mean, there's, there's the, free movement like just exploring movement and then there's also the more disciplined of trying to you know and so the, the, i think both have some benefits there yeah, sure. um i can't remember where i read it but they're talking about the the play circuit being the same as the learning circuit so if you're not allowing that then you're, you're kind of just shutting down learning yeah <clears throat> that's true and kids still really learn best through play. I mean, whether that be physical play, but whatever type of play that they feel motivated towards, intrinsic motivation, right? So, you know, if they, if they want to pretend something and that's what's helping them learn, act out something and that's what's helping them learn, all those things fit together. Um, and so expecting them to kind of just learn in this one way of sitting at a desk and you know, writing or watching something on a screen is not really the full capacity of what their different learning, you know, abilities that they could be using. Right. And, and those are all natural to them, right? They're, oh, yeah. They, they know how to learn. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Have a smart child who is struggling in school? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you feel like the struggle is holding your child back from their true potential? Maybe the anxiety and worry over your child's future just beats you down every day. You don't have to live that way. Learn how to stop a learning disability from becoming a life disability. 
A child with a learning disability is stressful for the child and the parent. The disability may be eroding their confidence and shattering their self-esteem. Other people may perceive your child as unintelligent and antisocial. If not addressed and fixed early, the child may develop permanent challenges later in life when looking for a good job or meeting a potential spouse. Our current school system does not know how to properly help our children, but at Learning Success, we do. We've created a system you can easily do at home with your child, and with just 15 minutes per day after school with your child, you can save them from a life of struggle and heartbreak. Learn how to unleash your child's potential and embrace their true intelligence. As a special gift for being a loyal podcast listener, we're going to give you a free trial of the Learning Success System. Try it out absolutely free for 15 days. If it is not the perfect fit to help your child succeed in school and in life, just cancel before the trial ends and pay nothing. You even get to keep the free bonuses. Go to www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast to get your free trial now. You'll be so happy you did once you see the great grades your child is capable of getting. Imagine being so proud of your child when they bring home a great report card and hand it over with a beaming smile. Get your free trial now at www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast. You've got nothing to lose except the stress and anxiety that is holding you and your child down. I'll see you there. So there was something in your about Legos. What was what did you say about Legos? I can't remember, but uh, it was just a, a, it was meant as a joke, I think. But Legos are interesting because I know there are some, there is some research on the benefits of, of Legos and and learning. Um, but what I wanted to ask about is like modern day Legos are like these little kits, like this is what you're going to build. But the old Legos were like here's a bunch of stuff, right? <laughs> Uh, what do you think of the, the benefits of just here's a bunch of stuff go do something yeah I think what I've seen at least with my own kids and I think there's some research to back this up too is this idea of sort of like loose parts you know that kids really like just playing with whatever's available um the box that the Christmas yeah <laughs> present exactly. came in. The box of random stuff that you keep in your junk drawer right so I think there's so much value to that, but they sometimes, we have coached, it depends on the age of the child, of course, but we have coached children so much so that they are sort of um, well-versed in the fact that the idea that they have to follow instructions, that sometimes they have to be untaught that, I think. <laughs> so if you have, you know, an eight or 10 year old, and the only thing they've ever known to do is like follow the, the Lego booklet, and they've never been allowed the freedom to just make whatever you want or just here's a cardboard box and do whatever you want with it. Sometimes they have to be guided into that a little bit. Um, but if they've never known those restrictions, they'll do anything with anything you give them. I mean, I feel like that is the beauty of Legos and other building toys like that, that is to just, um, I mean, it's good for them to learn how to follow the instructions to a certain extent, but then once they've sort of done that, then it's, you know, 
open up the parameters and let them do whatever they want and see what happens. And that to me is where the creative spark and the, the real learning really happens when, when there's no, you know, formal rules that they can just figure it out on their own. Um, I think that's really the, probably the most beneficial part of tool, uh, toys and things like that, where there's just no rules, just do what you want with it. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. So there's definitely a, I mean, we need to learn to follow instructions as a skill. But what you mentioned is that if they're, if it, that is like too much of that too early or that's all they get, I mean, how does, is that, is that what's happening with some kids? So they're just like, I, I know in some cultures and like Asian cultures that that's pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I can't imagine really a child who would never be allowed to not use, you know, to do what they want with Legos. That's kind of an extreme example. But just uh -huh. in general, I think that the idea that like the grown-up is always the teacher, the grown-up is always going to tell you what to do, that that mentality is somewhat limiting to, to children's creativity, that they have to have some freedom to come up with their own self-directed play. And that's really what it's about, is like make up your own rules when you're playing with a group of friends. You know, it doesn't always have to be the adult in charge and making up the rules. Go out and play, make up a game. You're in charge of the rules. You and your friends come up with, if there's a dispute, they, you know, this is obviously age appropriate, but uh -huh. figure out how to manage that dispute yourselves. And so there's, I think there's a lot of value and research has pointed to, to this too, in unstructured play, self-directed play, this idea that the kids are in charge of that kind of realm of their development or their interests. Um, and at least in, you know, small areas of their life that are age appropriate for them to manage, right? Um, right. Yeah. So you think that the, they're just not get, getting enough of that, that enough time, time, time in that unstructured play? I think that's true for a large portion of the population, really. I mean, because the push in recent decades has been um, organized activities, sports, and not that there's anything wrong with sports, but sports sure. and, you know, after school classes and uh, there's just every possible thing you can enroll your child in right now. You know, there's everything, everything is out there, chess and robotics and this and that, and that's, that's fine to a certain extent. But I, I think we need to come back to the idea that unstructured play still has a lot of value and a lot of developmental benefits for kids. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, research is starting to point, point to that more and more that um, there's been a few studies that have shown kids who have more time for unstructured play um, that is related to higher executive functioning skills. And it's just for the reason that you would expect because they're in charge of that, that unstructured play. They're coming up with the rules. They're coming up with how to uh, deal with interactions with their peers. And all that stuff is still really valuable for kids. Well, I guess unstructured play is, if you really look at what it is, it's problem solving, right? Yeah, to a large degree, that's true. I mean, everything you've coming up the rules, that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. probably everything you've said is, is a problem solving. Right. Uh, which is, um, is pretty, a, a lot of cogn cognitive skill to do that. They, they've got to go deep into their brain to figure that out. Yeah, that's right. 
yeah, yeah, interesting. And a lot of, I know a lot, like a lot of the, the playground activities that we used to have were actually problem solving too, trying to, really trying to climb a tree. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. and it's all, it really is, even though it may seem looking at it that it's, it's not important, but if you really look at the function and what's going on in there mm -hmm. then to, for those things, it's, they may be more cognitively difficult than the structured stuff, right? Yeah, I think so. At least, at least at times, definitely. Interesting. Interesting. Going back to, we were going down a path of that, um, that music. And, and so that would seem to point to the fact that there's some shared, that if there's a crossover between developing music skills and then better academic skills, that these are sharing at least in part the same neural networks is that mm. kind of the theory there i think so and um and just sort of i think the um i guess the yeah sort of the mental muscle memory sort of idea that um your brain is getting used to understanding things in a certain way and um yeah strengthening those neural pathways okay good there is some research and i mentioned some of the research that on the the physical stuff is in the elderly and so there's quite a bit of research on um balance and other cognitive loads at the same time so for example what they did is they'd have them walk and count by twos or threes or um, or backwards by threes, you know, increasing the, the load. And what they would do is look at how did that affect the gait? And that they, what they found was that there was a direct, there was a direct effect. And now the purpose of these is they're trying to get the elderly not to fall down. So, but, um, but what I think they showed is that those neural networks did have crossover because when they gave them, um, something to think about while walking uh the the rhythm would change the speed would slow down the regularity of the steps they would become irregular so the what was going on in the mind was affecting even though we would think of walking as something that is so built in that we don't have to think about yeah. right so that's that to me seems really close to the music studies yeah, I can see that connection. I mean, yeah, walking would seem like it would be so automatic, but yeah, like you're saying, it does take a certain amount of mental load to do that. So if you're sort of distracted by this other, you know, skill you're trying to do, that makes sense. Right, right. So yeah, we um, going back to the emotional intelligence. We're talking about self-management. Um, and empathy, um, self-awareness, self-awareness, self-management, and empathy. That's kind of intel in, in, emotional intelligence, right? Yes. Yeah. The the self-awareness again. We talked about that coming through the through the uh, interoception, through realizing what's going on in our body, and that's a very strong mind-body thing. Um, the self-control, we would call that in 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 yang or yin yang. Um, as a masculine 
state of, of being. It's very important in Kung Fu as a teacher because you have to control the, the, the emotional state by controlling your own. And then let, as long as you can hold that state, then it'll propagate among the others. And of course, if that was a like a serious wartime activity, you need to control that state to be, what it does is it allows your, your brain to function um, and to have your reaction strong. Um, so, and then we talked about the, the empathy. So what would you think about and what, what are tips to, to, from your spec perspective of being more self-aware being or self more or any of those self-aware more in uh, controlling your emotions, um, or more empathetic. Well, in terms of um, fostering those skills in kids. Yeah, think, that, that's what I meant. Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is kind of the heavy stuff of parenting, I think. So um, one thing I talk a lot about with, with my work and parenting is trying to, when your kid is, when your child is doing something that you don't like or misbehaving or trying to separate putting boundaries around their behavior and separating that from punishing their emotions. So I think the old school of parenting, you know, like maybe our parents were raised was, was a kid is misbehaving or acting out or throwing a fit or whatever it might be. And they're just punished. They're just sent to their room or back then probably spanked or, you know, it's just, and so the perception of that is is that they're they're being punished for the emotion, right? And so I think at least, you know, I think that may not have been the intention, but I think that's sometimes that's, what comes across, right? Is that um, you're crying, so we're going to put you in your room, or you're crying, so we're going to, you know, put you in timeout or whatever. And so I think it's helpful to try to help kids understand that they can have whatever emotion they want. It's okay to release those emotions, but the boundaries have to be around behavior. So, you know, we say things like, it's okay to be angry, but you don't hit your brother, right? So it's separating the the emotion from the behavior. And then we can help them deal with those emotions in a, you know, a healthier way. So instead of hitting your brother, let's go over here and sit down and take some deep breaths, or let's go over here and go outside and run around the playground. Something to get that emotion out, and it still needs to have its expression, but the behavior is the thing that has to be sort of bounded and controlled to a certain extent just for safety and, you know, health. And so that has been really one of those big eye-opening moments for me as a parent is that we can let them be sad, we can let them be angry, but we don't have to punish that. We can put boundaries around their behavior. And so that builds emotional intelligence because they're understanding how to cope with those big emotions in a healthy way. At the same time, you're still allowing that emotion to exist. So it can come out. We just have to let it help them understand how it can come out in a better way that's not destructive to somebody else or to themselves. Um, so that to me is a, a real big, you know, kind of social emotional building piece that parents can do. Yeah, know? that 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 actually sounds really super powerful because, mm -hmm. 
for for a number of reasons but starting with is that if, if you are punishing the emotions then they're going to learn to repress those exactly that's going to come out later in probably yeah. some pretty bad ways as adults right, right? Uh, so yeah it seems like that what you just described is a really really important skill as a parent um i mean is there a template for that how would i how would a how would a parent really develop that skill in the fastest best way yes. well or or just yeah there's no <laughs> it's hard i'll just say that um we all because because as parents we're caught up in that emotion too i mean talk about mirror neurons they're at play all the time so when we see our child crying upset that sparks our own you know anxiety and upset and so that's when things start to spiral out of control because we're upset because they're upset and then nobody can calm down <laughs> um so, so which is which is part of it uh, the emotional intelligence anyway holding your own state right exactly, yeah exactly so i think you know parents can work on their own emotional regulation and that's something that a lot of us don't really realize i think the extent to which we need to work on it until we are parents and then we realize how easy it is for us to get our emotions out of control and how it happens just in the blink of an eye um so recognizing that in ourselves i think is helpful that you know we have our own work to do first of all that what what strategies can we use to help calm our own emotions when we're in that situation with our kids and so you know whatever that looks like for for each person breathing or going outside and taking a break or whatever it might be, exercise um, to help us keep in charge of our own emotions and then we can model that for our kids. So we just asked this question and you remember we met through one of the, the tip, the questions tips, and we just asked that particular question. How can parents do that? Oh, okay. And I was a little shocked at this, how slow the answers came in. <laughs> like yeah. so um and now they're coming in but it seems to be a I, I maybe it's not something we don't think about enough yeah and it's i mean it is challenging you have to be have a certain level of self-awareness i think and you got to be a zen monk right yeah. <laughs> yeah when your kids start to they they know how to push our buttons you know because we're all we're all in it together. So um, it's very challenging to keep that emotional regulation when, when you're in that situation with your kids. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because you're going to get triggered and not realize it. And I mean, unless you're very skilled at your own personal self-regulation, it's going to be a ways before you realize that you haven't done it. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Interesting. So, coming back to mind body again there so um this meditation is is like the answer to that yeah i mean that's that's a great point and yeah. um and there is you know a lot of research now talking about the link between self-care and your kind of level of patience right there i know of one study that looked at that and right so if you're not getting enough sleep if you're not eating well, if you're not exercising, all those things pile up and then, you know, your child does something that triggers you and then you're off, right? And it's hard to get back to 
that in place of emotional regulation. Right, right. Yeah, that, yeah, that would make sense. I, I certainly can't when I'm tired. You know? Yeah, who can, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm horrible at it, so I, I get plenty of sleep. Yeah, so the, yeah, the act of meditation, and, and when I say meditation, I actually refer to, there's many forms of it, there's just the, you know, the sitting meditations, but in, in Kung Fu, we have slow forms, which are moving meditations, um, or just being mindful, is, is the path to disciplining the mind, mm -hmm. and, and the objective of that is to recognize those things faster, and eventually, when you become like the Zen monk, you you recognize them before they happen. Yeah. It's... And um, yeah, it, so good, good. The science and the the old uh, thousands of years old knowledge is, is somewhat coming together here. Coming together. Yeah. Uh, who most often wins the sword fights between your kids? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you'd be surprised how much the little one, the little, the littlest one, and they learn quick how to fight back. And yeah. How to, um, retaliate. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Get sneakier and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I can't remember where I read it, but but it was a, a bit of social intelligence thing. I think this would qualify as that if one is completely dominant, the other will stop playing. And, oh, right. Right. And so, yeah. and, and I've seen this a lot because we used to, um, I ran a martial arts school for 20 years and our, it was not the typical martial arts school. It was not where you had the big windows and the seating for the parents. We locked the parents out. <laughs> and some of the reasons, because one of the things that we did is we let them just absolutely free for all for about 15 minutes before class. Nice. And I mean, it was, we, we were a very watchful eye. We had at least two people completely focused. We wouldn't talk to each other or nothing, but we were just looking for any safety problems at all. So we did have a watchful eye, but we did not interfere at all. And, yeah. if, and if, you know, there two were not getting along or whatever, and we would do our best. If, you know, one, of course, would come crying to us and, and we're like, go work it out, you know? And, yeah. um, but it was really interesting to see the development that was going on on that. And, and one of the things that you would see is, is that when you did have one that was very stronger and dominant and, you know, you'd win on whatever they were doing over and over, but then he would learn to let the other one win a little bit so that the other one would keep right. keep going, you know. That's, um, yeah, that's a great point, actually. Um, I was just rereading this article about play fighting and the benefits of play fighting for social emotional development. And yep. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying that that's the way, yeah, that's the way kids learn where those boundaries are and, and how to enter, you know, kind of like, how that how they know when they've gone too far and exactly that's i mean that is part of social emotional learning it doesn't look like it when they're out there you know hitting each other and whatever they do but um we had, we had to you had to watch very closely to recognize what was going on but it was it was going on like continuously out there yeah it's it's really interesting to see that i mean with with boys i see it all the time that 
um, they learn over time, just like you're saying, you know, when is it going too far that I actually am going to hurt somebody? And, and I often compare it to like when you see little puppies rolling around on the floor, like, you know, playing by, you know, biting each other and playing. It's, it's all, I mean, it's kind of almost the same thing. It <laughs> is figure out pretty quick where those boundaries are. Uh, it, it is. And all mammals do it. Mm -hmm. There's even some, it's been seen in reptiles. So it's not, it's not unique to humans. And what's interesting is even in the animal kingdom in, in actual dominance fights, like say two tigers, they rarely hurt each other. Mm. They have to know because it's a survival thing. If, you know, if, if one tiger kills the other but gets hurt in the process, well, he's going to die too, right? right? Or, or in, the, you know, in, the, in the, um, the primates, they do the same thing. If there's a, um, two of them fighting for dominance and, and you know, want, they're both hurt, well, the, the third one's going to come in and take them both out and, yeah. and become yeah. dominant. So it's just, it's, a, it's, it's necessary for in, in those worlds for survival. And I've, we're doing the same thing with, in, in kids. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, play fighting is pretty, pretty complex as what, how much development. Yeah, it really is. Is going on. So, uh, which, yeah. And so I was curious about the, who was winning those swords fight, sword fights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you say parenting is not a job, but a relationship. What do you mean, Ben? Well, so that, the reason I, I came around to that perspective is a lot based on this book called um, The Gardener and the Carpenter. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but um, no. she, the author is a, I believe she's a neuroscientist. Anyway, she um, talks about how, you know, this, the kind of dominant parenting um, sort of philosophy that we hear about in today's world. Tiger parenting. Well, yeah, it kind of comes back to that and just sort of the idea that there's one right way of doing it. And if we just can put enough of the correct inputs into our kids that they will turn out perfectly. And really what the research shows is that there's, you know, parents have an effect on our children's development, obviously, but it's not so linear as that. It's not like, oh, if I just take, you know, put them in this school and feed them this food and da 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 then they're going to turn out perfectly. It's about the relationship. Mm -hmm. It's about just what we've been talking about, the social emotional skills and the things that we teach them. And they're going to learn more through that and the relationship with us than all of the sort of formal things that we do with them. You know, the classes we enroll them in, the you know, all these sort of things that we hear about that we're supposed to do as parents, it's really about the relationship. And so that, that kind of converted my mind to this idea that parenting is not a job that we can quote unquote succeed at, it's a relationship. And just like you have a relationship with your, you know, friends or your spouse or, and, and you don't quantify it that way. You don't say, well, I'm going to have this perfect relationship with my best friend or this perfect <laughs> outcome. It's not about that. It's about 
building this lifelong trust with your child and this interaction with them. And so um, that has influenced a lot of the way I approach parenting with my own kids and the way I talk about it on the blog. Um, but even though I reference research a lot and we like to, you know, that, that part of it is important. It's not just the sort of like input output um, equation. <laughs> you, can't, uh -huh. you can't quantify parenting in the same way that you could um, some other kind of science. So that that's interesting. That brings to mind. So you're um, so in a relationship, it would seem that your relationship is the practice of soft skills, right? By kind of by definition, right? Right. And so by being in a relationship with your with your child, that that's essentially what you're doing all the time. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think. Yeah. And yeah, and uh, I know from being married for 21 years that that relationship is a developmental process. Not fun, but I mean, I, that came out wrong. <laughs> it's not always a fun, but development is not always fun, right? And so any relation in, in a relationship um, with friends is, a friend is somebody who's going to call you on your stuff, right? Right. Yeah, it's not always um, enjoyable in that sense, right? They, they push you to do, look they at things a different way or... They you want know. you to be a better person. Yeah, exactly. Which is what the parent-child relationship is, which is what the spouse relationship is, which is what mm -hmm. a true friend relationship is, right? Right. So it seems like the, the realm of relationships is is the, the, the ground for learning these. I mean, it's kind of rhetorical, the same, the same thing, right? But yeah, interesting, interesting thought, though. Yeah. Um, Jumping subjects here. Talk about growing up in the 80s or helping your <laughs> child to have more of that growing up in the 80s thing. What um, what are the, some of the benefits of that? And or why? Well, this is from one of your blog posts. Um, yeah. you know, but um, can you talk about that? What's well, this this whole idea came around because of. Um, the idea of unstructured play, that's, okay. that's okay. coming back to a lot of what we talked about with that, but um, just the idea that there's lessons to be learned by allowing some freedom and some allowing our kids to make mistakes and allowing them to make, you know, have just a little bit of freedom, age appropriate freedom to explore and problem solve like we were talking about and all that happens when we cut back on the scheduling we cut back on the um just sort of the rigidness of what is nowadays today's kind of parenting culture it seems like is all about you know extracurriculars and how many things can i get my child into and and so i think this idea of the 80s parenting you know is just going back a little bit to let your kids run free in the neighborhood and let them figure out their own solutions to some problems and not, it's not about just having no boundaries or no rules. It's not that it's just sure. allowing them some space to kind of explore, explore that aspect of their development a little bit. All right. So you're saying a lot of this is in the culture, which is pretty obvious now that you say it, but I hadn't thought about it before. Um, 
but then there's also electronics. So they're not. Right. So those two things together, at least, and maybe more, it has moved them away from the unstructured play because we've got these diversions or uh, distractions right. from it to take our time. We don't have to have it because there's, there's always something there. Well, you're saying culturally, but then there's also right. electronics. Um, yeah, the electronic part of it is huge. I mean, on any given afternoon, if you're, if you live near a park or a playground, if the weather's nice, you know, take a look at how many kids of school age are out there. And some days you'll be surprised at how few there are. And right. if they are, they're usually in some sort of organized activity, soccer, football, something. There's not too many kids of school age, at least, that are just out there playing, just doing what, you know, hanging out with their friends, just yeah, thing that's organized or scheduled. <laughs> Right, right. And so I think we can determine where the, through this discussion, we've just figured out that they're not getting the unstructured play. They're not getting that because of culture and electronics both and, may, and maybe more. Mm -hmm. um, and unstructured play really seems to be the foundation of where they learn to learn and learn and learn these soft skills and yeah, all that. Absolutely. So it's it's no surprise the the rise in in learning difficulties that's going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think putting those things together is a huge part of it, and helping people understand why kids struggle with the things that they do. And I, I mean, this doesn't explain all of it, but I think sure. that is a huge piece of it that right. <clears throat> set up our culture and our kids' lives in such a way that they they live in a very sort of small parameter of what they're allowed to do and the ways in which they're allowed to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we naturally have the learning ability built in. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So speaking of electronics, I saw you had a, um, a cell phone substitute that you recommended. Mm -hmm. That seems like a good idea. Well, the way we've used it, we've used that and walkie-talkies um, uh -huh. because it allows, you know, I have a 10-year-old, is mostly the one who uses them, but um, it allows us to give him a little bit of freedom in the neighborhood. We can still communicate, but he can kind of have a little bit of free reign to a certain extent, right? He can't leave the neighborhood, things like that, but it gives him a little bit of freedom so that he can build some of those skills. I mean... And he's not playing video games on a, on a smartphone. Right, exactly. Um, he can go hang out with his friends and sometimes they, you know, play video games. But sure. if, you know, a lot of times. I don't want to demonize video games. Right. I know there's actually, some, there's actually some benefits. It's just over, overuse. And, right, and, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, it allows him to do things like bike to the pizza place that's across the street you know he has the walkie-talkie or the cell phone alternative thing we can still talk to him he can go with a buddy and he can you know he's learned so many things just doing things like that you know he goes to the pizza place he has a certain amount of money but he has to figure out like what can I buy with that amount of money <laughs> and I need to bring back change to my parents and well what if they 
overcharge you. He had to deal with some situation like that one time where mm -hmm. they overcharged him or something. You know, just all those little like. So how did he deal with that? That's those well, are that's a great soft skill example right there, right? Yeah, he he gets there and they. I think he paid a certain amount and he got back home and he brought back the money that he had and we said, I think. I think that charged too much or don't they usually have a special that seems like it's a little much for a pizza. So then um, we called the store and they said, well, yeah, we um, We didn't give him the special deal because he didn't ask for it or whatever. Oh no. <laughs> we had to coach him on the fact that like, you know, ask for like, what's your deal of the day or, you know, we had to like kind of go over with him. This is what you need to do when you go into a place like this, ask if there's like a special or a coupon or what, you know, uh -huh. so just things like that, like figuring out was I charged too much or, you know, things like that. Just it's all that stuff that doesn't really come up until you're in the situation, right? You can't really prepare a 10 year old for something like that until they're in the situation. Sure. Sure. That's good. Good learning time though. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I grew up in the, not 70s, but late 70s, early 80s, and our rule wasn't much more than be back before dinner, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, and you, did, did I read that you, you grew up on a farm, farm as well? I did. Yeah, I grew up on a farm. So that's a lot. I grew up in the, in the, in the country. Um, was on a farm a lot, riding horses and, and all of that a lot. Yeah. Um, how do you think that is as far as developmental for for kids <laughs> not not i'm i know most kids don't have that opportunity but just uh yeah I know that there's research on on neurogenesis and uh nature oh yeah i mean the nature part of it is huge i mean the separating ourselves from nature too much and our kids is um a big challenge nowadays but I think the main thing that growing up in a situation like that does is that it really helps you to um, well a few things you learn how to be bored and you learn how to get unbored very easily because you uh -huh. have a lot of time on your hands and you have a, a lot of things you can do outside and you learn that boredom is not the enemy because you know, you don't have, but you know, then we didn't have every form of electronic diversion that we have now. We just had TV pretty much, maybe a few video games, but um, so you learn how to deal with your boredom. And that's, you know, I think a really valuable skill that all kids need. Um, Which is, is in a sense creativity, right? Right. Creativity. And I think learning to get past that feeling of boredom because at first it's uncomfortable right for kids like I'm bored I don't have anything to do they start whining and that's kind of natural right because it kind of feels uncomfortable but if you can kind of push through that and get into that like creative problem-solving state then on the other side is all this cool stuff that you eventually come up with because you were bored you know and so um in today's world, sometimes it's hard to replicate that. I found at least that it's hard to allow kids to be bored enough to where they are forced to kind of get through it and come up with something to do. Because <laughs> there are so many diversions, so many things that would get them out of that boredom a little too quickly. Yeah, I um, did an interview with Nicole Black and she, what she mentioned, something like that is that 
when she took the electronics away that she would see a reaction. There was a tantrums or I don't know, mm -hmm. some emotional reaction. But she said it only took about 15 minutes before they figured out on a way to not be bored, to entertain themselves. Yeah, I think that's very true. I've seen that. So my it's own kids do exactly the same. That so it's not just, really that hard, but you just got to get through. You have to get through that little initial phase of whining and complaining, and then they they'll figure it out. <laughs> Hold strong for fifteen minutes, and you're good. Right. Huh? right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, would you recommend that parents get their kids out in nature? Oh, Obviously. absolutely. I mean, you can't beat that. <laughs> yeah, you really can't. <laughs> you really can't. Yeah. So, anything else that we have, you want to bring up that we haven't covered that in the uh, we kind of jumped right around. Then. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, we've covered a lot of really great stuff. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. for sure. So, um, I know you, you have a free temperament ebook on your site, or I saw something else that looked cool about. What, what is it that, that they can get on your site? Um, there is a temperament book. It's not free, but <laughs> it okay. doesn't cost me much. Uh, there's a book on temperament. And then depending on what their interests might be, I have several different downloads that are free about ones about emotional intelligence, things you can do on a daily basis. Okay. Um, I have several different things um, focused around this emotional intelligence piece. So um, we can point people in that direction they're they're usually embedded in different blog posts so okay so um, there's there's a lot there around this subject and other yeah. parent and and so the website is thoughtfulparent.com thoughtful parent so is that that's the best place for people to go is yes that, uh what about your social media or, uh, or yeah i do have a facebook page um if you just search thoughtful parent the, the thoughtful parent that will come up okay um that's the most common, uh, I guess, most active social media is probably Facebook. Okay, but probably the blog is the best best place for people to sure. go. Yeah, and, for I, sure. and, and I did say that you, I, I did notice that you're, you do try and start a conversation on the blog where people can um, comment or comment and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I, I read all the comments and yeah, the Facebook page as well. I always try to interact with all the folks on there. Yeah. Okay, good, good. So it's a back and forth. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Excellent, good, okay. Well, thank you very much. And- uh, Thank you. This has been um, a very nice talk, a very, very inter interesting to me. And I'm yeah, thank you, I appreciate it. Okay, all right. Thank you for listening to the Learning Success Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We also hope you have learned something useful, something that you can take back and improve your life with today. If you would like to say thank you, the best way for you to do that is to share this podcast with a friend. Help us help others along this journey. And if you haven't already, please rate and comment on the podcast. Every rating helps us and helps this podcast get out to more people. We appreciate it and we appreciate you. Thank you again and make today a great day. No one should have to live with a learning difficulty.